Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I was so panicked that they would think that my personality, my memories were all gone. So I would type, I'm the same on the inside over and over so that they would know that I had not changed. It's just I could no longer speak or eat or walk or see, but that everything on the inside was exactly the same. She was just 25 years old, young and vibrant, living her best big city life with her adoring husband, a community of friends, and a new, beautiful baby boy. Jay was in law school, Catherine beginning a career in entertainment, and there was no warning, no symptoms, no family history to explain how one sunny afternoon in Los Angeles, Jay stood in front of an on-call neurosurgeon who told him that his wife had a massive brainstem stroke and was probably not going to make it through the night. He just, for some reason, felt really deeply moved to help her. And I was holding our baby, you know, and talking to him. And I think he just wanted to, he couldn't get the baby out of his mind either, he has said, and wanted to give this mom a second chance. So he took her to surgery that would be about eight hours to hopefully stop the bleeding and, you know, figure out what was going on and see if he could even do anything. And he did do something. He had done 16 hours straight of micro brain surgery that would save Catherine's life and start the couple down an entirely new path of long-term rehab, an extreme impairment that would change their lives forever. Today on the show, we explore the complexity of loss, finding purpose and hope amid tremendous grief and heartbreak, the notion of suffering well, and how to endure when your vision for your future has been entirely upended. We also talk about the value of friendship, community, and the opportunity to relearn to love someone anew on the other side of tragedy. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. everyone, and welcome to All the Wiser podcast, where we share jaw-dropping stories of extreme adversity and the inspiring wisdom that comes on the other side of pain. We also donate $2,000 an episode to charity and celebration of our incredible guests. And today, we have two guests, Catherine and Jay Wolf. 
Today marks the first day we are interviewing a couple on the podcast. And it's something I'm really excited about. For someone who is deeply passionate about finding and helping people to share their stories, it's a unique opportunity to tell one story of a shared experience through two lenses of people who lived the same story in completely different roles. So different roles, different perspectives, but the same end goal and vision for their future as a couple and a family. I love that they have found purpose and meaning and taken action in their pain. I love their honesty about their relationship and what it means as a couple to get through tragedy and to change and evolve and find each other again and again. Their honesty and bravery and shared mission as a couple is beautiful. And now I bring you the story of Catherine and Jay Wolf. Catherine and Jay, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for having us. We're so glad to be here. I normally start out with people sort of sharing the backdrop of their life or their childhood, but Obviously, I think, and I'm sure you agree, that there is many stories to share today, but one thread is certainly a love story. So I'd love to start, Jay, with you telling me about you and Catherine first met in the early days of your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. We met at college. We are both from the South and sort of found our way to a college in Birmingham, Alabama. So in the cafeteria, we met one day sort of you know, sitting at these tables freshman year with our respective sorority fraternity members. And uh, I just remember seeing Catherine with this gigantic plate of cafeteria food, and it was a fantastic cafeteria. And so it was all these wonderful, like, eats and treats. And we were in heaven, you know, just having this incredible experience. And it was truly like a buffet, metaphorically and literally. And um, I was just like, wow, who is this gorgeous woman who also is like not afraid to just hunker down. <laughs> and she was, you know, just the life of the party and interesting. And so we, you know, I looked up during that lunchtime when we met and just all of a sudden we were the only two left in the cafeteria. And so we sort of haven't stopped talking and, and doing life since really, but um, got engaged by the end of our college career, got married the fall after we graduated and then moved to Los Angeles to pursue a whole bunch of other dreams and way more crazy stories than we could have ever imagined. <laughs> after that together. As you said, you got married at a Southern 600-person wedding, as they do in the South. (laughs) So Catherine, going back to that day, what did you envision your life to be with Jay as you were envisioning, you know, building a life in a future? What was that for you? Yeah, I I think I probably, I don't know. I, I imagine, I thought that life would always be easy and special and beautiful and wonderful and perfect because I think we're all teed up to think that way about our lives, that everything's going to come up roses because it always does. And um, it would end up being quite the opposite in some ways. In doing the research for today and watching some of the videos and interviews and old footage, these words we say, right, when we're we're married in front of our friends and families, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. 
and millions and millions, right? We have these ceremony and these words, but to really sink in what they mean and forecasting into your life. So I know that's something you referenced and and friends I have who've dealt with, you know, sickness and loss, they often go back to those words on the, on their wedding day. So mm-hmm. I thought your reference of that really stuck out to me. Yeah, yeah, I think so often we, you know, really lean into naturally just that the positive attributes of of vowing and and covenanting and promising on our wedding days of, you know, just the, you know, together we're going to be better and and our powers combined. Right, it's, it's be, for richer, yeah, for healthier, for all the, yeah, for all the best yeah. parts. And I mean, that's just natural. That's, you know, you're on this sort of mountain peak and, of an experience and um, possibilities of future. And then, you know, obviously live a little life and, and those things don't always work out that way. And oftentimes it's, it can be the opposite, you know, and turn out totally differently than you imagined. And yet I think instead of that being such a devastating reversal of what you promised, you go back and you realize you also promised the opposite. And you realize over time, like that's not a despairing story, but that's really even more of a beautiful one to say that you will stay no matter what. And to say that, you know, I'm in this until the end (laughs) is a pretty breathtaking promise to tell another human. And for, you know, for all of us, we just, who've made those vows, you know, I think we don't take deeply in enough the reality of what it means for somebody to promise that and uh, especially until you really you know need that affirmation when when the story does change and you know that's not always it doesn't always work out that way for people sometimes it's too much to stay and yet i think for us it's just been a beautiful gift to each other it's not we're big advocates to keep persevering you know and it's hard and there's obviously lots of different specifics and you know neglect and abuse and all, all these horrible things in, in relationships. But I think a lot of the time we're just, you know, we're willing to give up on um, a story when it doesn't look like what we thought it would look like. And yeah, we've just seen in our own life that there's a lot more to living out this totally unexpected story that, you know, can be hard, but can be really good. Thank you for that, Jay. That was sure. poignant and really beautiful. So Catherine, I know you made the move from the South to LA and Jay was going to law school and you were beginning a career in the entertainment industry. So mm-hmm. paint a picture for me about the early days of your life in LA. You're young, you're married. What did what is, you know? Oh, paint- absolutely. Life was so fun and easy and we were super young and living out our dreams. I was doing some commercial work in Los Angeles, paying our bills, my catalogs and, you know, little fun things for Target and Disney and, you know, just kind of having a blast, meeting a ton of people, enjoying life. Jason Losco and Pepperdine, we are living in Malibu and it was great. We were loving life and we had a little baby along the way when I was 25 years old, still very young. I got unexpectedly, but super welcome, a precious baby, James Thompson, on October 16th, 2007. And he became our little, um, yeah, our little fun mascot for our friend group. And we were just, yeah, loving our lives. We were plugged into a church that we loved, that we went to the whole time we were in L.A., actually. And we were just involved at Pepperdine and mm-hmm. just really like living a, a wonderful, easy okay. life. And then I think a lot of the advice that was really 
helpful was just to make LA a home and to sort of, you know, see it as this dynamic city and, and new people and relationships and not just sort of a means to an end, which I think a lot of times people see big cities like that and have so much expectation about what they're going to get from it or their dreams are going to yeah. be fulfilled. And so we we just got great advice early on to, you know, even if you're in law school and, and you know, that this is a season you're just going to really focus in, you still, you should really still like be open to loving relationships and jumping in all the city has to offer and new, you know, California and your, your faith community and your, you know, just the season of life. So we really did take that to heart, you know, and, and I think it, uh, I mean, we moved to LA not knowing anybody really. And yeah, and kind of insane thinking of our son now going across the country at 22 and having, having no real major plan or relationships, but the video that you guys have shared of the joint birthday party, you mm-hmm. actually know your six-month-old baby or yeah. J- your baby James threw the right. party for you. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> you're right. In, right. You're, yeah. In, yeah, the, the, ta- the tagline was that mom and dad have done so much for me this year, I'm throwing them a party. <laughs> So, okay, I'm going to paint the picture for our, our listeners and we'll sh- hopefully share the video so they can see it. But you guys are just young and vibrant and clearly charming and funny. And there's all these friends and your baby's throwing you a party and <laughs> you have kid food, chicken fingers and Debbie mm-hmm. cupcakes and everyone's holding sparklers. And man, does it look like the most idyllic life, right? Yeah. You know, all yeah. of it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. And, and it was in so many ways. Yes. It was, yes. And I think what you're speaking to the community and the friends and, you know, all all of that really to me was epitomized in this in this family video that you've shared. Mm-hmm. But life would change and it would change pretty quickly. I'm curious how long before the stroke was that video taken? Oh gosh, so only three weeks before actually. Mm-hmm. So three weeks after this sparkler filled birthday party, <laughs> life changes dramatically. I'm curious from both of your perspectives, and Catherine, maybe you go first, and then Jay, sure. if you can tell me about that day, what you remember, what you're experiencing, and then Jay, your external experience of, sure. of watching Catherine. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. It was a totally, quote-unquote, normal day. I yeah, I felt funny. I woke up and just felt weird. I felt dizzy. But I'd had a baby six months before, so I'd felt gross, yuck, you know, dizzy from breastfeeding and not sleeping and all the rest of it for about six months straight. So I didn't think anything of these feelings, and I had no medical history, no family history, no reason that anything should be wrong with my body. And I had been power walking the hills of Pepperdine the day before to get off that baby weight. And yeah, it was just, I mean, it wasn't even on the radar that something like this would be happening. So when I felt weird, I just thought nothing of it. And I brushed off the feelings of yuck. And then as the day progressed, um, I ended up falling to my hands and knees. They went numb. I began throwing up. Jay, who happened to come home and find me short, I mean, he came home to finish a paper for law school to print, but ended up being able to call 911. It's really amazing. 
And as the paramedics packed me up on the stretcher, they determined it was something very serious. I would need to go to the hospital. And as I left the married housing dorm on the stretcher, I would lose consciousness and only wake up two and a half months later. So I'd been in a coma-like state for an extremely long period of time. And Jay, what do you remember about that day? What are you witnessing? Yeah, you know, it was a super ordinary day. I was about to graduate law school after all this buildup and we had this new baby and, you know, I just could almost sense the new season ahead and, you know, just moving on into this really hopeful, exciting future. And so as Catherine said, I I literally just happened to come home for like a very short window between my classes. And I had sort of procrastinated on this final presentation and I needed to print out something. So um, we lived on campus. And so I, you know, instead of just staying down as I might normally during the lunch hour, I bought back up to the apartment where our six month old was taking a nap and Catherine was kind of doing some cooking in the kitchen. And so, you know, go to work on something in the other room and hear her cry out in a, you know, one of those ways, if you've ever heard somebody you love, just what you hear in their voice, like something's wrong. And so I ran in and she was laid on the couch and just like, you know, knew something crazy was happening in, in her body. She didn't understand it, but she, she was starting to go numb in her hands and feet. And then she was starting to throw up and, um, you know, sort of lose consciousness. And so I called 911 and they came and took her to the ER and they, um, you know, we followed behind her and it was really just pretty head spinning. If anybody who's been in this kind of medical moments where just, you know, everything shifts dramatically and raced behind the ambulance to the ER, which was UCLA that day. And it was, you know, the doctor was on call that day, sort of the neurosurgeon, renegade surgeon, we would find out later who would take, you know, all the hard cases just happened to be on call and really painted the picture of how grave the situation was in that Catherine was having a massive brainstem stroke, which is a horrible place to have a stroke, of course, at this really core of of your body's basic functionings, your brainstem. And and, um, unfortunately, it was due to this uh, massive bleed from an AVM, which we had never heard of. She had no warning of it. No, there's no family history, had no symptoms even. And so he said, you know, this AVM is something she's had her whole life. And, you know, many people never even know they have them until they rupture. And sometimes they don't even rupture. But unfortunately, hers is the biggest that I've ever seen in my career. It's all around her brainstem in uh, her cerebellum. And the bleeding is, is causing a lot of pressure in her brain that's causing the brain to be squeezed down into the spinal column. And that's not survivable usually. Not, uh, you know, so he was just sort of all of a sudden having to just say, like, it's she's probably not going to make it through the day. And I don't even know if I can do anything surgically to intervene. And, you know, I, I <laughs> we laugh sort of now to say, like, the fact that I was a lawyer was not helping the case really for him to even do it because it was, there was such a small chance that he could help, much less he might, you know, leave her even in a worse state. And so even, you know, liability aside, all that, he just for some reason felt really deeply moved to help her. And I was holding our baby, you know, and talking to him. And I think he just wanted to, he couldn't get the baby out of his mind either, he has said, and um, wanted to give this mom a second chance. So he took her to surgery that would be about eight hours to hopefully stop the bleeding and, you know, figure out what's going on and see if he could even do anything. And our friends, you know, just sort of gathered around me in a really sacred time that we just sort of cried and laughed and, you know, just had a really 
one of the most powerfully human moments and, you know, cried out together just to God to have mercy because there was just, you know, it was, it was just so head spinning. We had been leaders in our community and, you know, just again, as you mentioned, sort of this vibrant, like idyllic example of just like everything you would want, you know, and all this possibility of a life and a future and a family. And then all of a sudden, you know, how could this happen to Catherine? If anybody it was just, it was shocking for everybody to witness. And, um, and so the sun came up the next morning and we had waited all through the night and the doctor came out and said, Catherine lived. And I like to say, you know, to this day, those words are, are words we celebrate and, and sort of a second chance birthday that happened that day um, is something we celebrate to this day. And we just celebrated 13 years of second chance birthdays this past spring. But, you know, he actually said he had not looked up at the clock the whole time. He, the type of surgeon he is, he's just, you know, all, all, all in. And he had done 16 straight hours of microbrain surgery to save her life. And so, you know, he said, we don't know if she's going to wake up. She may be vegetative or paralyzed, or she might be locked in, which is a horrible issue uh, that can happen around the, the sort of the areas where Catherine's brain had the stroke, where you are fully conscious, but you're completely paralyzed. And that was a real possibility. And, you know, at the same token, though, it was like, wow, she's, I feel like her life has been spared. And so that was, that was incredibly hopeful. I also think the connecting of the dots in that, you know, Jay, you talked about intentionally creating this community, right? Not just coming, but building Mm -hmm. a life here and doing that through forging relationships and deep connections with people. And also I know in your church, which you guys were laughing about that you were asked to do a marriage ministry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all you know, two years into marriage or whatever right. it was. So you had been reading all these books, right? About marriage and relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And that, you know, painting the picture of the chapel at the UCLA hospital. And when this yes. happens, people from all over the city descend because they loved you because you had made the time mm-hmm. to nurture the relationships and all of the groundwork you had laid on understanding strong marriages I mean, just to think of what you created and how that all wrapped around you at this moment Mm. is pretty powerful, right? Because you could have had none of those things. Yeah. Yes, and and plenty of people didn't, tragically. Throughout all of my hospital stays and surgeries, we've seen so much of the opposite of people who are walking through these nightmares all alone. Yeah, and I think that was a gift of that season of life and, and also a gift of, you know, being intentional about that season. It's so easy to just say, okay, you know, we'll pour into community or friendships like after, you know, the kids get out of this phase or after, you know, grad school or, or whatever. And, you know, for whatever reason, we really felt moved to not waste any season and to jump in all wholeheartedly to to give ourselves to the community. And and again, when we needed it the most, it it showed up and we were surrounded in a way that really changed everything. And Jay, I'm curious about, obviously, you're receiving this information, which is very layered, right? You've found hope, but there is still so much at stake. And I'm curious about the first time you saw Catherine, and it must have been this juxtaposition, I imagine, of the, the wife of 48 hours before and now. So what was that experience like? seeing her for the first time. Yeah. Though she was, it was so hopeful that she was alive. I mean, to really witness, you know, the mother of your child and your just life teammate and dreamer and, and best friend just so severely wounded 
was just, you know, it was almost too much to bear. I think I fell out on the floor, just I couldn't hardly stand up to witness her, you know, they had, of course, removed part of her skull and to get to her brain. And so there was just, you know, it was her face was hugely swollen and tubes coming out of literally just everywhere, including her head. And yeah, it was just to juxtapose the full of life woman I met in that cafeteria, you know, all those years before to that moment, it was just pretty hard to, to reconcile. And, you know, that would be the beginning of a new sort of life. We're 26 and not unaware of the world or life, but we had no idea what it looked like to recover from a massive brain injury and stroke and all these things. And so certainly the recovery ended up taking many, many years and continues to this day, frankly. But yeah, it was the beginning of an incredible, painful and slow process. And Catherine, 40 days in a coma, is that correct? Yes, it was actually a coma-like state, just to be accurate. Um, well, I well, yeah, you have no memory of it, but you were you were conscious. But it was yeah, there's it was all. Yeah, it's funny, you know what? What is the brain doing? Mm-hmm. I, I technically seemed awake to my family, but I have no memory um, of that mm-hmm. time at all. I was a life support, and I've seen photographs of it, but I definitely right. have no memories. And what is your first memory? Oh goodness, it's real. It's really sad. Um, when I first kind of woke up, came to two and a half months after my ordeal began, I had been moved to the acute rehab facility within UCLA Hospital still. And I can remember slowly waking up and just being beyond confused. I couldn't even understand. There was tubes covering every inch of my body. I had a massive feeding tube in my stomach where they were feeding me. I could no longer see clearly out of both eyes, and they weren't tracking anymore. I have double vision to this day, actually. And I was deaf in one ear, blind nearly in one eye. My face was paralyzed. Um, So I couldn't really even wrap my mind around what had happened. It was like my worst nightmare is my body no longer worked. And they gave me a letter board one of those first days to communicate where I would um, type letters on a board, like hit a board with letters on it, and it would say letters, and thus my family and friends could spell words. So we'd communicate through me spelling out words to them, and I would type over and over, and it's really sad, but I was so panicked that they would think that my personality, my memories were all gone. So I would type, I'm the same on the inside over and over so that they would know that I had not changed. It's just I could no longer speak or eat or walk or see, but that that everything on the inside was exactly the same. What is that experience like to be on the the same on the and do you feel trapped? Is it scary? I oh, imagine one hundred percent, extremely trapped, and it was an entire different layer of just paralysis upon the daily recognition that I couldn't take care of my baby that's growing, that friends and family are bringing in the hospital room to visit me. And so, you know, people bring little James in, who's now eight and a half months old, 
And it's tragic. It was like Groundhog Day every day for me because I would think, oh, today is the day that he's going to stay with me in the hospital bed and I'll take care of him now because I'm his mother and I'll figure out how to breastfeed and care for him and he can nap here. We're good. And it would be months actually before I could recognize that I was no longer able to take care of him. It was like that very deep maternal instinct just kicked in and it was go time, even though I was completely unable to care for him. Yeah, I've heard you talk about, you know, during that time in the hospital thinking, okay, I'm going to breastfeed and we'll figure, and realizing that for months he had been fed by a bottle and you could no longer breastfeed and that how crushing that was for you. Absolutely. It It was all horrific. On my first Mother's Day, Jay dressed up James in a mom onesie and brought him into the room to visit me. And we have a very special photograph that I have such a complicated relationship with because I don't remember this moment, but of James leaning over my hospital bed in the ICU still. And it's so sad and yet so special that we have that photograph. It was tragic. You know, I I say as much as I share my story, as much as I advocate for the disability community, as much as I, whatever, you know, the reality is there is so much joy in my life and gratitude in my story. And yet there is a very low grade sorrow and sadness that all is not well. You know, James will never get those many months back, years back, when his mother couldn't take care of him. And, you know, no matter how many hundreds of babies I have in the future, I'll never get back those moments. And those memories are there for life of me waking up to not being able to care for my child. And that's extremely painful. I heard... um, a wise woman, Cheryl Sandberg, say that we never move on. You know, we never, ever move on from our terrible trauma and pain. We carry it, but we move forward. We move forward. And um, that's what I very thankfully do in my life. But there, there are tremendous wounds, and that would be among the most primary, is being unable to take care of the baby. And as you do move forward, the next step was a long-term rehab, is my understanding. And I've heard you say that it was both hard and heartbreaking and that, in your words, everyone else is messed up on the inside and you're messed up on the outside. So that's that disparity of your peer group, right? That you can't relate. A hundred percent, yes. And... I know swallowing, right? All these, all these things yes. that you we oh, all yeah. take for granted becomes this big goal, and that mm-hmm. you, you know, <laughs> Jay spoke to it in the cafeteria backdrop and the endless buffet. But right? you, yeah. you, it sounds like you're a lifelong foodie, and that you know, food is passion sure. and love and life and all these things. Absolutely. So, talk to me about that time trying to regain these abilities and and what this next chapter looks like after the hospital. 
Yeah. So while my body was very impaired, my mind was fully intact. And the opposite is true for many. So I was seeing um, a lot of just tragic um, inability to speak or, you know, can't remember their spouse's names or, you know, just really, really horrible stuff. And in that same season, I'm seeing people come into the very worst moments of their lives. You know, people who've been hit by a drunk driver and they're paralyzed, um, quadriplegic, or, you know, I mean, just any number of just terrible traumas. And um, it was a very dark season, very dark. However, I was getting well. So it was very complex for me because I was relearning to walk and eat and speak. And so, um, you know, I, I, I had many, many emotions attached to all these feelings of such terrible loss on so many levels. But my loss was being, um, you know, countered by my recovery. And that wasn't happening for everyone. And it was very very complicated and very painful. In those circumstances, right, and within the walls of that reality for you, as you said, everything that you are going through physically, emotionally, mentally, but then to be surrounded by that level of grief and, and sadness and heartbreak. Right. Where do you find the strength, find the hope? I mean, each day when you wake up, how in the world? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, you know, It's multi-layered, absolutely. But then, and to this day, I absolutely believe that the breaking of my heart just gave me this new heart, really like my terrible, broken-down state gave me different eyes to see the world, my peers. And I had always had a compassionate spirit, I would say to some degree, but true, real empathy and loving people, hurting, hurting people was, I mean, a thousandfold based on that experience. And to this day, as we engage the disability community and people in trauma of all kinds who reach out to us from all over the country, um, we're able to really counsel them and love them well because of, of where we've been. And I am very much a believer in the power of hope to change the way you see your life. I'm a big advocate that if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. And I say that constantly to other people whose bodies are broken, but they still got something to offer the world. They're here for a reason, and there's purpose in their story. And um, I think I knew that deeply from my faith from when I was even a child that I somehow knew there was more to the story than simply the here and now. And Jay, you know, there's something you guys talk about is a couple and this idea, this notion of suffering well. And so I'm curious, what does that mean? What does it mean to suffer well? And I also want to ask you, because certainly in this podcast and in, in my life as a human outside of this podcast, I know that caretakers are often forgotten 
right? All of the focus tends to be on the person who's sick or outwardly suffering. So I asked that question, speaking to both Catherine's suffering and your suffering Mm -hmm. during this time. So what does it mean to suffer well? Yeah, I think, um, you know, so often, especially in our modern culture, that's really desensitized to death and the fragility of life and um, even disability, you know, all of those sort of topics are the final taboos, it seems, of our of our modern age and culture. And I think, you know, nobody would invite suffering in to sort of like get stronger from it or learn from it. And yet uh, the reality is we don't have to invite it in. It's part of our experience as humans. if We live long enough, especially. And yet we somehow still sort of try to deny its existence or, you know, do a quick fix or whatever. And, you know, I think especially when we look at people who are, who go through really hard things when they're young And again, have all these, you know, maybe like us, like these trappings of what everybody wants and, you know, this golden future ahead of them. And and when those type of stories experience this reversal or the suffering, it looks just like the biggest tragedy, right? To an outward maybe world and an outward culture that says, you know, you should have every dream you've ever wanted and you're entitled to that and whatever. And I think we just found in that time, especially, and it was you know, we say this having reflected on that time, I think in the, in the moment, you know, you're in shock and you're, you know, it's not like you have these profound sort of um, transcendent wisdom when your life is falling apart. I mean, you do what you can to just keep showing up every day. And I think, you know, we've seen through that journey, just like the depth of what suffering can offer. And again, no one would choose that, but if you're already going through it anyway, and you don't really have a choice over that to see, wow, it's not the end of the story. Like there's something new and deeper here that's available. If you have eyes to see it that way in the right time and the process of just healing through that, but just to see, wow, we have a new lens of seeing the world. Like Catherine said, there's a new compassion, you know, your heart can break and it can then kind of heal back all calloused and smaller and brittle, or like you can, through your heartbreak, allow your heart to expand wider and see the world differently and see other humans differently in their struggles and see how your own struggle might be a part of their healing as well. And Catherine, I wanted to ask you about first. I imagine there's a series of hard-earned firsts, right? All of these things that you've lost, you're now working so hard to get back. Right. So I'm curious about some of those moments, food being one of them, the first time you're able to taste and experience food. So can you share with me some of the firsts? Oh, absolutely. So I only relearned to swallow and eat food and drink anything water again after 11 months and five days. So I um, was NPO before that, meaning nothing per oral So that was a huge first, was um, getting to taste yogurt and then pudding and, you know, all sorts of like basically thickened liquids early on. And it was magical. I'll never take a bite of food for granted again. And, you know, similar to walking for the first time, standing for the first time, you know, there's definitely a difference in how you view things, you know. Loss is an incredible perspective-giving agent. You you can really um, appreciate things differently when you don't do them for a very long time. So Mm -hmm. the list of firsts was long. 
and um, With James sort of side by side too. Yeah, like you're right. You're right. It was it was really interesting because as I was really in the thick of my recovery, James was being you know from tiny baby to toddler. He was you know six months old to about two and a half. Those two years were the the worst for me for sure. So as I'm relearning to eat food and trialing it. He's trialing baby food, or mm. as he's learning to take a step, I'm relearning to take steps, mm-hmm. and on and on. You know, in my he beat you on a few. yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> he did beat me. That's true uh-huh. uh, on most areas. Mm-hmm. In my occupational therapy, they actually had a medicine ball, a weighted medicine ball, and they, you know, they sharpened the words James on the ball. And would have me practice lifting the ball with my right side, which is my weakened side. So I would need to lift that ball, James, every day. And slowly but surely, I got strong enough to where I could eventually lift my son again. And that was very special to be able to carry him. I obviously couldn't walk and to this day cannot um, move while carrying a child because I have no balance. But um, I can hold a child if I stand, and it's magical. So, Jay, during this period of what would eventually become a new normal, but in the you know months and years, I'm curious, and part of one of the many things I love about you two is your honesty, right? And not glossing over as it was hopeful and, you know, that any piece of this was remotely easy. So I'm curious during that sort of what it, what were the hard days and the good days? If you can give a snapshot of, you know, the good triumphant days, but then the reality of the day-to-day and the hard moments. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the best days were sort of, again, these very human experiences we take for granted, sort of regaining some of those, you know, celebrating the being able to eat food again or, you know, taking a walk or just even being able to sit up in bed for a certain amount of time. And, you know, in the same token, then there were just setbacks that were devastating or, you know, you overhear and sort of piece together some bigger pictures of the, the medical story or gain just like knowledge in the process and, you know, really realize, wow, like that's something maybe that's never going to come back, you know, even remember Catherine, we, we kind of like put together that she was actually going to be fully deaf and there was really no workaround for that in one of her ears, you know, or that she was, you know, had literally had part of her brain removed. Like we didn't actually, of course, they don't tell you all these details straight out of the gate, you know? And so just over time there, there was this sort of relearning and, and just in general understanding what it means to be disabled in the world was a, was a pretty tough pill to swallow. You know, you, that was nothing that had ever been in our experience or our family's experience or you know, we just didn't understand what that meant to all of a sudden have this world that at one point was your oyster, you know, to then be a world that wasn't made for you. You know, that was a pretty deep experience and and sort of foreshadows a little bit of our future advocacy for the community people with disabilities. But early on, that was not a mantle we wanted to wear. It was very, you know, much something we just hoped, okay, with enough work and therapy and prayer and everything, like you're going to get out of this wheelchair and you're going to be an inspiration, but you're going to be, you know, back to normal. And, um, you know, you just realize that over time and, and understanding the reality of your body and your brain, like that's just not how it works, you know, barring some insane miracle. And 
And yet the reality too is that like, wow, how often do we overlook the miracles right in front of us, sort of hoping for something crazier, bigger than we got. And like the real miracle was that Catherine was alive still and able to still have her memories and her personality and her will to live and her family and all these things. And so, you know, again, just reframing and reorienting in the midst of all of like the upset disappointments and this future vision of our life being so upended that it was still a miracle that we were living in. Speaking of miracles, we're going to move on to the miracle baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, yes, please. We've talked about James. Mm Mm-hmm. The process of, I presume, trying for getting pregnant with John, what is that road to having a healthy baby in this? And mm. that, that opportunity to, to be there, I imagine, in the early months and years had to matter deeply to you. Absolutely. It was seven years after the stroke that all my doctors gave me medical clearance to become pregnant um, and have another biological child. And miraculously, it happened right away. There was actually no trying. (laughs) And um, I got pregnant with baby John. First medical shortcut. Yeah, that's exactly right. That We say that was the very first medical shortcut <laughs> I'd had in quite some time. Um, pregnancy was actually very easy. You know, it's so interesting. There are not many women in wheelchairs having babies these days. I was going to say a neat. Just sorry. John Nestor Wolf was born on June 26, 2015. And... It was a dream. It was bizarrely easy. They made all these plans. I'm with the super high risk doctor at UCLA, and you know everyone's preparing for a C-section and super dramatic. And in the end, we almost couldn't get to the hospital fast enough to have a completely natural delivery. He was two weeks early, and it was just so miraculous in every way. Actually, it was 7.07 in the morning, seven years after my stroke, which was crazy. Um, at, the same at the same hospital, literally overlooking from the new wing of the hospital, we were overlooking out my window the old hospital room I had been in seven years before. It was crazy. And Dr. Gonzalez, my doctor who saved my life, ended up coming over that day and holding baby John, who is actually his namesake, John Nestor Wolf, is named for Nestor Gonzalez. And um, we did not know this at the time. We named him Nestor because of the doctor. We did not know that the name Nestor in Hebrew means seeker of miracles. So remembrance and wisdom and all these remembrance, wisdom. Yeah. I mean, just this uh, incredible wealth of just what what you would want for your child. Oh my goodness. So it was just, Nestor is truly a gift to Mm -hmm. us in every way. And little John is doing wonderfully today. He's in kindergarten and best friends with his 14 year old brother. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they are almost eight years apart and could not be closer. So even though I wouldn't have wanted that stroke in between to keep me from having children closer together, 
it's perfect. They they are the exact ages they are supposed to be. And they're just a joy to be their mother. I love that. Everything about that. I didn't know about the naming and that he was able to come back and hold baby John. Oh, so. oh yeah. We can send you a picture. It's, yeah. It's pretty incredible. That's beautiful. Jay, you know, one thing that comes up on the podcast and the many people I've been grateful to talk to over the years is this idea of loss and gain. And that we, when we lose something, um, honoring, right, the grief of that and the loss of that, but mm-hmm. often in its place, you gain something. So I'm curious when it comes to your relationship with Catherine, your marriage, and that you guys have talked about this and you can give an answer that really represents yeah. both of you, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So on loss and gain, when it comes to your marriage, what has been you know, the greatest loss and the greatest gain, the greatest gift? Hmm. Yeah, I think there's always that hopeful possibility that, again, the, gain, the gains could come um, in the space where things have been lost and that um, what's lost, you know, again, isn't the end of the story. I think for our marriage, I think, you know, the main loss was just losing some of the dreams that we had had. So in so many ways, like it, it was a loss of expectation. And yet the gain was this gain of, a, of reality. And I think it doesn't take too much to sort of re- you know, look at the story and think, wow, if Catherine had not lived and if she had not been able to recover, you know, just the, the trajectory of the story would have been so different. And then much less now we've together gotten to sort of rebuild a different life and a different marriage. And as I referenced earlier, like I, I believe you're through suffering born into somebody new and that's just not Catherine is both of us. It's our whole family story, you know? And so really what, in terms of our marriage, like there was this opportunity to relearn to love somebody new and kind of find each other again on the other side of this total upending of our life and and this uh, unexpected tragedy. And, you know, a lot of folks aren't able to find each other again, you know, when they lose a child or when they go through medical crisis. And so, you know, we were just humbled to continue to try to show up very imperfectly to life together and to find, again, through a lot of just grief and loss and sort of recovering from that loss and trying to heal from that loss together, that something bigger than some of the parts of our marriage was able to happen. Catherine, I've read you talk about body shame and sort of reframing beauty and walking away from shame. So I'm curious if you can speak to me about that as a woman who, you know, at 26 woke up with a completely different body. Right. So what have you learned about, you know, your new relationship with your body and about the shame? I think in particular, all women put on their bodies, but your experience, I'm sure, was deeply heightened. Oh, it was, and it is. And the reality is, to this day, from our camp for families with disabilities to counseling women constantly as they encounter um, dramatic changes in their appearance or their body's ability. And as I remember my old life, my old body, and obviously dealing with the paralyzed face, things are very, yeah, complicated. However, in moments of clarity, here's kind of what I've reconciled. Um, One, like this body in whatever state it is in, whatever it looks like, is how we show up to the world. It's how we interface. 
with existence. And so there is tremendous, tremendous value in our bodies. So to minimize the value of the body, of the face, of the soul, it is to minimize our existence. So I, I think it's super important. And yet I think we both elevate the body and suppress um, the goodness of the body in our stories. I call it, you know, they say that there's a movement to body positivity of, you know, loving the body you have. And that's really the opposite of body shame or feeling body shame. But I actually think that the accurate place we should all land is body neutrality, that we're not elevating our body or like cutting down our body. We're recognizing that this is my tool. This is how I show up for the world. Now, with that said, I've done a lot of work, a lot of, honestly, therapy for what it means to have a body, to be a student of one's appearance in many ways. And I think that basically true beauty is walking away from shame. And what I mean by that is our whole lives, we have this story we're told of our appearance of, I mean, I bet I bet you could, Kimmy, and I think every person, both male and female in the world, could tell the first time they heard someone say something that really messed them up about their appearance. And to this day, we all have memorable messages of hard things we've understood and taken to heart about the way we look. And so much of our ability to see ourselves as beautiful is about walking away from the shame that we have internalized in our stories. It's walking away from all the hurt associated with our story of our own beauty. Thank you. That is, I think, a needed message that will resonate deeply with people. Um, Well, it's, it's my wrestlings and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it that yeah we've all been given a lot of junk and internalized and this messed us up jay you sort of touched on both of these things your work together with Catherine, and you know the point at which you were not associating yourself with the disabled you know community and now it's the opposite right this is where your passion lies and making a difference So if you can tell us what Camp Hope Heals is and what it means to the people who experience it. Yeah, I think, as I said early on, the idea of disability being a part of our story was so painful and foreign. And so often I think what wounds us is the last place we want to go back to, uh, much less sort of have that place be something that's elevated in our life for good. And so we spoke at a, a camp for families affected by disability and we're the speakers, but through that time and through a lot of the work we do just online, we sort of leverage a lot of social media and connection through our website. And just over the years, I've gotten to connect with so many people going through that story of disability. We just realized, wow, these folks get it, you know, like they're living it and they're trying to maintain hope. And so are we. And like, let's do something together with that reality and that struggle and that unique place that you kind of like look into it over time and realize, wow, People with disabilities are the largest minority group in the world. And 
yet there's the highest rates of suicide and unemployment and depression and divorce and homelessness. And just because this, this group is just so often under-resourced and then further coming from LA, it's like, okay, you have 20% of the population that's disabled, but only 2% of the representations in media show somebody with disabilities. So, you know, you're, you feel alone. You don't even see yourself on TV. And as I said, the world's not made for you. So it's hard to be in the world. It's hard to affect change in, you know, culture centers and, and education and law and the arts and government because it's just, it's hard to even get in the door. And, um, you know, you have to have an advocate <laughs> so often. And, and many times families are broken up by the reality of disability and you, you have no money and you're bankrupted by medical bills. And, you know, maybe there's brain trauma and cognitive issues, you know, emotional issues, just it's layer upon layer of just struggle and pain. So, we realized, you know, quickly, like we're in a lot of ways, the anomaly, like Catherine has her full cognition and her ability to communicate. And, and I'm, you know, an advocate by training and, and also have just walked through this with Catherine uniquely. And so we, we realized we, we could be more than just even a sort of a figurehead, like poster child for disability, but like maybe we, we could actually really leverage some of the unique abilities we had and opportunities we have. And so we created this camp, Hope Heals Camp. And, you know, I thought it was going to be a regional thing, but it ended up attracting folks from 35 states and the UK to come. And it's been two weeks the past five years, and and we're able to kind of expand now to a third week. So we have basically one-to-one situation of volunteer to a, a person with disabilities. And so, you know, obviously, like most of those experiences, you know, the, the person coming receives this, you know, deep healing as well. It's not sort of this us versus them, or, you know, here's the one giving and here's the one receiving the charity, but we, we really try to holistically position it to say like, we're all disabled, <laughs> you know, none of us can do life fully live the story with that. We think we should be living. And, and how do we come around that, you know, in some ways mourning the loss, but also celebrating the great reality that we're here together and really blurring the lines. Like we're all, you know, we're all invited. There's a seat at the table for all of us. And so that's really the ethos that's shifted how we view our own life and, our, and continue to give us courage to keep persevering in, in the really hard and unexpected parts of the story of disability, which continue to come. I mean, even in, in our camp, we've had seven of our campers in five years die. And so, you know, we're doing life together, but we're also doing death together. And um, yeah, it's just this microcosm of the human experience and our longing for faith and, you know, community and compassion and hope and all of these things together. And it's, it's incredible. So we love any, uh, you know, we, we have the families come for free. So we, we take on the fundraising support to have families join us without the financial burden. And um, so we've gotten to invite incredible donors from all over the country to support the work and volunteers from all over the country. And, and so, yeah, we're grateful. Hopehealscamp.org is the website for more info. <laughs> Yes, please donate. (laughs) We're always grateful. So Catherine, the last question is for you. And I'm curious when you share your story, whether it's on a podcast or the many ways in which you share it, what do you hope that people take away from it? What is your intention and hope in sharing? You know, what is the gift to the people who experience it? Oh, goodness. There are many. It's hard to say. But one is that we all have invisible wheelchairs. You know, I've got one on the outside of my body, but we've all got internal junk happening. We've all got wheelchairs. You can just see mine. 
Everybody's got stuff. We owe each other a tremendous compassion. And just we need to move through life with each other with gentleness, tenderness. We've all we've all got stuff in our stories and pain. The second thing is that this is the good hard life we're all living. Life is not one note. It is not good or hard. Those aren't mutually exclusive. They coexist. It's both. Life is good and hard at the very same time. Life is hard and good. You can't have one without the other. It's both. And my story is extreme for sure of near-death disability afterwards. But the reality, everybody's got hard stuff. If you live long enough, for sure. And the reality is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this one precious life? Thank you. I am so honored to have this conversation with both of you. And there's so many things I have deep respect for, your commitment and love for one another, but also just your willingness to show up with vulnerability, but also really your intention to to give back and sharing your story and certainly with the camp and the work you do. So thank you both. Thank, thank you. you thank you. It. Yeah. So we do a little something fun. It's very quick. It's called lightning round, which tells you that it's quick. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you can just quickly, first thing that comes to mind, and there's just a few of them. Okay. Wonderful. Favorite childhood cereal. Captain Crunch. Lucky Charms. <laughs> this one may get me in trouble. Biggest pet peeve about each other. Oh, um, he is crazily detail oriented. Oh my gosh. The spilling. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Best way to spend a Friday night. For me, um, in bed doing nothing. <laughs> um, just loving a movie yep. and no plans. Pizza and movie night is very sacred in the Friday night space. Absolutely. Pizza night. One place you would love to go? Mm, Japan. Mm-hmm. Maybe Iceland. Favorite meal? Salmon. Smoked salmon specifically with a massive side of almond birthday cake. Ooh, I love that. Maybe whatever is the most decadent burger and delicious fries. I also love that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last one. The one thing you are most grateful for in each other. It's cute. Jay is about as steady and solid a person as any I know. It's pretty hard to ruffle those feathers. And I would say I'm most grateful for Catherine's heart, heart for other people, heart for life and um, for doing what's good and right and beautiful. And I'm glad to be on the journey with her. Thank you both again. And as you know, we're a one-for-one charitable podcast. So today's episode benefits Camp Hope Heals, and we'll be making a $2,000 donation to support that your work. So, that is so, so cool. Like, yeah. You're amazing. Your team is really special. Thank you. It means so much. Thank you. Well, we love the charitable model. It's it's really as meaningful awesome. for us as it is for anybody Absolutely. on the receiving end. So, um, mm-hmm. All right, Jay, go pick up the kids. Catherine, peace out. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for your kind uh, just conversation Absolutely. and support. It means the world to us. Thank you. Thank Bye, you. guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening. And if you like this episode, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcast. And if that feels too hard, then take a screenshot of your favorite episode and share it on your social media feed. We are so grateful for each and every one of you. Today's episode supports Hope Heals, the camp you heard Catherine and Jay talk about in our conversation. Hope Heals is a week-long camp experience in a year-round community offering resources, rest, and relationships to families affected by disabilities. You can learn more about the camp and look at a lot of incredible pictures at hopeheals.com. Thank you for making the time to listen to the podcast and Catherine and Jay's story. See you next time. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.